Tom made a lunge for the control lever, but the boat swerved at the same time in a crazy arc. For an instant, he saw water underneath him and his own hand outstretched toward it because he had been trying to grab the gunnel and the gunnel was no longer there. He was in the water. He gasped, contracting his body in an upward leap, grabbing at the boat. He missed. The boat had gone into a spin. Tom leapt again, then sank lower. So low, the water closed over his head again with a deadly, fatal slowness. Yet too fast for him to get a breath, and he inhaled a nose full of water just as his eyes sank below the surface. The boat was farther away. Hey, it's Jesse Dukes, and welcome to the third episode of Upper Middle Brow. If you're new here, me and my friend Chris Bagg will be talking about the 1955 Patricia Highsmith novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, the next two episodes were part of our piloting process, and we were still working out our format and our approach as we recorded them, but we think it's a good conversation. Uh, before we get into it, a few things I want to tell you. Uh, one is we're doing a promotion. Uh, if you own a bookstore or a writing center or work for one or a literary zine or something like that, if you share our podcast with your community in a social media post or newsletter, however you do that, uh, screen cap that, send it to us, and we'll bake in a promotional spot for your thing in an episode. Uh, we'll do that with the first five that we get. Um, and if you're new to the show, Chris and I are going to kind of ramble and catch up uh, for about six and a half minutes before we get into the discussion of the book, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, we're going to talk about salt pigs, the Queen Mary, preserved limes. We think it's a fun, charming conversation, but if it's not for you, skip about six and a half minutes from right now to get to the book. Uh, and finally, quick fact check, the Queen Mary is anchored in Long Beach, not San Diego. I knew that. I was there a year ago. I just said the wrong city. Embarrassing. Anyway, let's get to the show. After a little bit of this lovely bird song from Lexington, Kentucky. I would have thought of you, which is not something I do every day. What? Uh, but I would have thought of you even if I weren't going to be speaking with you tonight because right before this call, I had the need for a salt pig. Yes. I love a salt pig. <laughs> I know. And you're the only person I know with a salt pig. A salt pig is a, um, an item of gastronomy. An item of gastronomical technology. Exactly. Uh, um, a uh, technologie de cuisine, as it were. Exactly. As, as, as Tom might say on his trip to Paris. Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, I, I mean, listener, if you don't know what a salt pig is, it's a piece of um, uh, uh, ceramic that you keep your um, loose salt in. I, I could give you a thousand guesses and you would not guess why I needed a salt pig, I, I bet. Um, if you want to have fun, you can take one or two guesses. Okay. But I'm going gonna, I'm I, gonna to have a guess, and it is, um, it's going to be wrong. If it's, if it's correct, I'll buy you an audio recorder. How oh, my about God. That? Okay, so here is my guess. Um, listener, if you've never seen a salt pig before, it has a distinctive shape to it. Um, not a Rather shape. poor sign. <laughs> um, so my guess is that you are working 
on like a one to 1000 scale model of like the Queen Mary 2. And you needed a group of salt pigs to stand in for the smokestacks. Um, and uh, so you went out and purchased a set of six large salt pigs in red uh, that are now sitting on top of your um, of your one to one thousand scale model of the Queen Mary two. Wouldn't it be funny if you were only wrong because it was actually the QE two, and not the Queen Mary two? Like if if that was what you got wrong in that guess, um, I would I would say that, that you would still owe me an wonderful audio guess. I don't know. You said Queen Mary, man. Um, Does that boat even uh, exist? Did I make that up? Is there a Queen Mary? No, the. Uh, it is, and it is in San Diego right now, uh, anchored off uh, as a sort of permanent installation of the harbor. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I believe it was a Cunard uh, or Cunard, you know, intercontinental. Um, <laughs> is that the right term? <laughs> Basically, a ship that you take from the U.S. Uh, to Europe, like Tom did. Um, I, it, I, it was, yeah, and it, but it is now a uh, tourist attraction in San Diego. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, it wasn't that, but that is an extremely good guess. (laughs) Um, I will tell you, so what actually is the case, um, but a a couple weeks ago, uh, limes were on sale at my local Mexican grocery for about 12 for a dollar. Um, and so I purchased something like 30 limes because sometimes at the regular grocery, they'll be like 69 cents. And I, in the course of my normal existence, go through about a lime a day. Uh, I like lime in my beverage. I use lime in a lot of cooking. That's average. So some days I might not have any lime. Um, and I hate being without lime. Um, so right before we talked, I canned some limes in a mason jar, um, and preserved them with, uh, salt. Um, and, uh, so, you know, basically you, uh, slice the limes at the equator, then you slice them down the middle to create a little bit of a groove and put your canning or kosher salt into that. And then you shove as many of those into a mason jar as you possibly can. Over time, the salt draws out the juice which then immerses the limes and serves as a pretty good shelf stabilizer. Huh. I've never done it before, so so or I've done it one other time before. Um, so I now have two mason jars of limes on my shelf for when the hard times come and I need limes. Yeah, I'm interested if you have to like rinse. I'm, I'm sure you have to like rinse the salt off. I wonder how. I've never used. I've never really used preserved limes or lemons too much. It's kind of a blind spot in my my ingredient world um i know that I've they had, are um, well loved but uh yeah i don't i don't know what they kind of taste like uh, i've had moroccan preserved lemons before which is a particular uh, dish of morocco sort of famous for that and those but those are preserved i believe in olive oil and with certain aromatics and things like that they are very salty you actually I've had them with a like a tagine or a Moroccan couscous where they are a kind of garnish and you 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 use them sort of the same way some people might use a tapenade like as a kind of a way of adding saltiness and hmm. sourness uh, and lemon flavor um, but only in little bits like it, it's you know it's a it's a light garnish kind of like horseradish you know little goes a long way. I don't know if that's what these are going to taste like. Also, I was just wondering, I'm distracted at looking at myself. Did we agree we were going to go no video in voice or? Uh... What I always, what I'm doing right now is I have hidden myself you. So I'm just okay. looking at you as if, you know, we were actually talking to each other, not in the horrible way that we all talk to each other now, 
Um, but if you hide yourself, you then it's just it's just me. In this case, it's just you. Right now, now you should be all set. Now you should just be looking at me. I am, and um, and the rest of my of my bedroom. Yeah, sort of a kind of um, eggshell, uh, kind of sea green, sea foam. Uh, yes. motif is what I'm saying. Yep, that is. Yep, that is where I live. I live. I live where I live where Dicky lives now. Uh, spoiler. Um, <laughs> I <don't>, well, <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that experience because I sent I sent my sister like, oh, like Jesse and I are doing the talented Mr. Ripley, um, and then I mentioned, you know, I was like. Yeah, it's a little weird. Like right after like the part that Dicky dies, then I was like, "Oh, spoilers!" Oh, <laughs> and then, which is like one of those spoilers jokes where, like, holy crap! If you don't know that Dicky dies by this point, then I mean, what are we even doing here? I know very few people who have not seen the 1999 Anthony Minghella film, um, which I'll talk. Well, I I would like to talk a little bit about. But why don't we get into it? Um, yes. Yeah, so we're talking about the talented Mr. Ripley. Let's do our recap. I'm also I don't know about you, but whenever we've done those, I've gone sans notes and pure memory, which I think adds to the hilarity of the recap. Okay. I certainly think we could make them more efficient with notes, but I sort of enjoy the grasping quality of our recaps. Um, Perfect. So uh, yeah, do you want to get us started? Yeah, okay. Um, we pick up the action um, very much in media res, uh, yeah. which is going to be one of my favorite things about this book, is the mm. briskness of the first 139 pages. Yeah. Um, uh, astute listeners, you will notice that I did not say <laughs> the entire book. Uh, but yeah, we pick up in New York City at a bar called The Green Cage, um, and uh, which I wonder if is an actual place or a particularly like ham-handed metaphor or piece of figuration um, and not unlike not your sure. your your home office on a particularly busy day where yes, you don't that's true this is yeah this is the green cage um without the association of money of yeah. course <laughs> um but uh yeah uh tom ripley our hero um our well our main character that i mean um, that is the question is, right <laughs> uh thinks he is being pursued by the police another motif that's going to be repeated throughout the book mm -hmm. um because he's being followed uh he leaves the green cage and goes to another bar called raul's where in fact he is being followed by kind of a middle-aged uh balding man uh who introduces himself as herbert greenleaf and uh, needs a favor from Tom. Uh, Herbert Greenleaf's son, Dickie, has in the way of mid-century scions of wealthy shipping magnates, <laughs> has uh, kind of fucked off to Europe, where he is fucking off trying to be a painter. And um, Mr. This Greenleaf- is, This is like, why you don't give your son a trust fund, basically. <laughs> exactly. You lose your yeah. power to control them. <laughs> so all of, all of you, <laughs> Uh, listeners, any of you thinking about providing your children with trust funds, read this book. <laughs> yeah, bad things happen. <laughs> um, so they talk for a little bit. And um, at first, Tom really just wants to get away from Mr. Greenleaf, uh, but then begins to suspect that he could actually get something out of uh, Mr. Greenleaf. Um, and kind of warms up to him a little bit and agrees to meet Mr. Greenleaf and his wife at uh, the Greenleaf uh, apartments uh, in the next few chapters. And um, Mr. Greenleaf thinks that Tom could go to Europe and fetch uh, his son Dickie back. 
And so Tom considers this and he, he pretends to consider it. He's actually very excited about it because he, I, I think one of the themes of the first couple of chapters is Tom is rather unhappy and he's also not doing very well financially. And he's worked a series of dead end jobs. He's in his early mid twenties. He's in New York. He wanted to be an actor. He's not succeeding at that. He's also kind of not, does not like his social circle. He has friends, quote unquote, but he seems to despise them and have contempt for them. He just seems generally unhappy. And so he sees this trip to Europe as maybe a way to kind of change the momentum of his life. Um, and Mr. Greenleaf is going to pay his way and give him a handsome allowance, uh, $600, which is about $7,000 in today's money. I looked it up. Um, so Tom eventually, after meeting with the Greenleafs a few times, decides to take him up on this offer, uh, even though he's not at all sure whether he can convince Dickie Greenleaf to come back. He also, I believe, gen developed some genuine affection for the Greenleafs, uh, uh, Herbert and the wife who is very sick um, and whose name I don't remember. And I think we learned that Tom's parents are dead and one has the sense that um, Tom maybe wishes he had loving parents like uh, the Greenleafs, uh, too. And so Tom is going to set out on this trip. He says goodbye to his one sort of platonic female friend whose name I don't remember, who he seems to genuinely... Cleo. Cleo, right? Cleo. Cleo, oh. who he seems to genuinely actually... I think the only person in this book who Tom seems to actually like. Yep. And then is about to depart, uh, but goes to his stateroom uh, uh, on the ocean liner and finds that a bunch of his sort of no-good friends have found out uh, that he's leaving and have invited themselves to a party on the liner, which he finds very annoying because he is trying to break free of their influence. Um, but eventually the bell rings, passengers are made to leave, and he sets off for Europe. Um, he sails to Europe um, on uh, getting on a boat is is really kind of a, a heavy lift for Tom, who is terrified of water and does mm. not swim, um, which is a very important piece of uh, character development that will come back later on. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he's in the he's a first class passenger. There is a, a wonderful moment when he uh, tries to get a copy of Henry James's The Ambassadors out of the first class library where they don't have it. And he's sent to the like the cabin class, which is where the Henry James novels are for <laughs> some reason. Uh, and he 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 can't take it out of the uh, he can't take it out of the cabin class, even though he's a first class uh and you, and you do spend that. a whole bunch of the rest of the book wishing that he had read The Ambassadors. <laughs> um, and and maybe maybe things would have turned out better for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he sends a sort of uh, fuck you letter to his aunt Dottie, who we gather from Tom's narration is not a um not a nice person but we're mm. also starting to um not trust tom's narration too much um this is the part of the book where we really see the way that his mind works and develops um and moves from the mildest offense to hatred yeah. in in a very small amount of space um so he spends uh he spends the um the trip to europe kind of uh making plans um and kind of um polishing his appearances 
Uh, there's one scene where he thinks about uh, his aunt and he writhes in disgust, but there's this great line, but he writhed elegantly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he arrives in Italy and uh, after a series of, I think, mostly buses, arrives in the town Mangibello, uh, which is where Dickie has, uh, has gone to live. So in Montebello, which is a charming little Italian seaside town, he contrives to meet Dickie the first day that he's there. I think spots him at the beach, but eventually, rather than meeting him there, in one of the moments that departs from the 1999 Minghella film, I think finds him in an alley or something like that and um, introduces himself. Dickie doesn't remember him, um, although they had legitimately hung out at one point. Um, he was able to secure an invitation to Dickie's apartment, largely, I think, because Dickie's friend Marge takes pity on him um, and makes the invitation, um, something that D Tom is not particularly good at repaying that kindness uh, to Marge. And um, he tries to charm Dickie. He's brought a few effects, um, some gifts from Dickie's parents. He doesn't explain exactly what his mission is uh, to Dickie, um, but he's trying to endear himself. And he does, he sort of fails. Uh, Dickie is polite, but uh, they have a drink and that's that. Um, and then Tom becomes sick for a few days. Uh, we understand some like Italian version of Montezuma's revenge, like Pizarro's yes. revenge or something like that. The tourist's illness. Raphael's revenge. Um, and after a few days, he's well enough to go for a swim. He runs into Dickie again, um, says, hey, I still have these socks or in a, uh, for you. Do you want to come by? Uh, Dickie stops by his apartment, and then Tom tries a gambit, which is he decides to basically become a double agent. He decides to come clean and say, you know what, your dad sent me here um, in the hopes that I would convince you to go back, but I'm not going to do that. And in fact, um, you know, I don't remember if he says this right away, but eventually also says we should use the money your dad gave me to have some fun and is able to charm Dickie with this sort of surprise revelation of his ulterior motive. And Dickie invites him up for lunch and then he's able to charm Dickie with some of his uh, kind of parlor tricks. And we I think we are learning that Tom is in fact talented, like the title of the book. Uh, he's a rather gifted improviser, rather gifted actor uh, and impersonator. Uh, he can sing, I believe, and play the piano. Um, he at one point notes that he's good at mimicking other people's handwriting, which becomes important. Um, and so he becomes friends with Dickie and Marge um, and starts kind of joining their social circle and their life in Montebello. And in fact, pretty soon Dickie invites him to move into his apartment. Um, they go off and have a kind of like a, like a drunken um, bacchanal in Naples and Rome, I think. Right. They go to Naples and then decide to kind of keep going and yeah. like spend like just stay out all night in Rome and then sort of surprise Marge a little bit by kind of coming back the next day. Um, and this is basically and, like the best day of Tom's life up to this point. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is beyond anything that he kind of ever kind of he could could have imagined. Um, and um, a few uh, some time passes. Um, we start to see that Marge might be kind of like 
getting wise to Tom a little bit. She is cooling as Dickie is kind of warming to Tom. Um, and um, this is kind of driving a little bit of a spike between Marge and Dickie. Um, there's, uh, there's all in this book, there's like all of this, like, oh, we're going to go to Cortina for a ski party. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, uh, sort of social planning. Um, and Tom is trying to kind of wedge himself between Dickie and Marge. Um, the result of that is that Dickie feels that he has to do some kind of, uh, Marge maintenance, which I think is a phrase that ends up in the movie. It, it's not in the book. Yep. Um, Tom kind of like sneaks up to Dickie's house, uh, to Marge's house and sees Dickie and Marge kind of lightly embracing, like there's some pecks on the cheek. There's nothing like in flagrante, nothing like that. Um, but it, it infuriates Tom. Uh, he runs back to Dickie's house, throws a bunch of Dickie's painting supplies out the window briefly considers dancing on the parapet or doing a handstand. It's just, a, it's a remarkable scene. The moments where Tom kind of loses his shit are my favorite moments in this book. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, goes to Dickie's room and starts putting on Dickie's clothes and kind of dressing himself and impersonating Dickie and is caught in the act by Dickie, uh, which kind of begins their, their first real fight. Um, Dickie says to Tom, uh, you know, I'm not queer. And Tom is surprised by that, um, defends himself. And we learn from Dickie that Marge thinks that Tom is gay. Yeah, a very important scene. So I'll try to speed it up a little bit. But basically, Dickie starts souring on Tom as well and starts uninviting him to various plans and starts kind of indicating that maybe he should probably figure out when he's going to leave. Um, but I think maybe out of some kind regard or maybe as a sort of friend kiss-off, agrees to go on a trip to the name of the town is escaping me but it's another town on the italian coast near the french border uh, san remo san remo and uh, tom had really wanted to go to paris and dicky had kind of agreed and spend dicky's dad's money there but now dicky doesn't seem so interested and he's uninvited him to um the skiing trip, which is being organized by a ginger named Freddie Miles, another American um, who is going to show up later, uh, who Tom doesn't like instinctually. Um, and so they do go to San Ramo. They spend a day in Nice. Um, this is interesting. Dickie says something kind of homophobic about some uh, like uh, performers there, which Tom was enjoying the the real like circus performers or acrobats and Tom is offended by that a little bit and around the time that he takes offense to that he uh, and he's also kind of realizing that Dickie is freezing him out and he might not be welcome uh, very long in Montebello also I should say earlier he was kind of fired by Dickie's dad Dickie's dad writes a letter that basically says yeah I'm not going to give you any more money and I think your trip uh, to persuade my son to come back to America has failed, despite Tom's efforts to kind of string him along and say, oh, I think it's going pretty well. Uh, maybe in the hopes of getting a little more money out of the old man. Um, that fails. So Tom's kind of sort of realizing his time with Dickie might be short and that he might be running out of money. 
Um, and as anybody would do, decides to kill Dickie. <laughs> yes, of course. The the most the most logical decision that one would make in this moment. Um, I think you know, <laughs> like this is a joke, but I think what you're kind like you're also kind of winking at the nature of the narration of this book, which is that it convinces you <laughs> as you're going along. Like you begin to sort of nod along with the logic of Tom's sociopathy. Um, and uh, yeah, we do get the the central act of the book where Tom kills Dickie, um, sinks him, uh, sort of ties a bunch of rocks to him and throws him overboard. Um, has a very dramatic moment where he actually goes in the water too. Um, it's one of my favorite sections of the book uh, because it's uh, and and we should say this is all happening on a rented motorboat. Ah, yes, a crucial a crucial in, in detail. San Ramo. Yeah. Um, Tom uh, scuttles the rented motorboat um, and begins to kind of hatch his plan of taking over Dickie's identity. Um, this is sort of one of the first novels of identity theft oh interesting um we uh we we head back from san remo to mangibello um where tom kind of um hurriedly concocts this story that dickie has decided to move to rome and he sent tom back to take care of his effects and um tom sort of lurches into action selling marge on the story and deciding when he can actually leave so it will actually be the most uh, most compelling. Um, he begins selling Dickie's furniture and puts the house on the market um, and then uh, sods off to Rome, um, where it does seem like things are going great for a little bit. He goes to some parties. Uh, he goes to France, um, and where, he, where he truly wants to go, uh, gets himself invited to some parties, um, and does pretty well at the parties um, and really imagines that he has kind of launched himself into this new chapter of existence um, and that everything is uh, everything is kind of going along swimmingly. And he's just going to take over Dickie's entire identity. No problem, uh, which is ruined by the arrival of Freddie Miles in his apartment in Rome. Um, I, and I think a couple things I'll just add to that is. He's stealing the identity in the sense that he's cashing uh, Dickie's trust fund checks. Um, he's also stealing the identity in the sense that he's writing letters to Marge as Dickie and sort of very slowly breaking up with her and also writing letters to his parents as Dickie. But he's also from time to time impersonating Dickie's identity by going out in public as Dickie. Um, and we're given to understand that they resemble each other somewhat um, and actually, some of my favorite passages in the first half are Tom's sort of musings on what it takes to steal somebody's identity, which, you know, he says has more to do kind of with posture and bearing and attitude than, you know, likeness. And he also talks or thinks a little bit about the challenges of and tries to prepare himself for turning back into Tom Ripley from time to time. Say when he encounters somebody who knows Dickie Greenleaf and Tom Ripley and knows that he is not, in fact, um, Dickie Greenleaf, but is, in fact, Tom Ripley. And actually, just such a person shows up unexpectedly at his apartment in Rome, uh, which is supposed to be Dickie's apartment. Um, Tom answers the door, and there is uh, Freddie Miles, the American ginger, um, who 
is offended and hurt that Dickie didn't show up at Cortina for the ski trip. Of course, it wasn't Dickie's fault. Dickie was underwater dead. Um, and is trying to figure out what's going on and starts, he, he seem, he's perceptive and he starts to realize something seems amiss. And he seems to realize Tom has claimed that he's not staying in the apartment, but merely visiting for a few hours, and that Dickie is out somewhere at some cafe, and 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 Freddie really ought to just go find him there. And Freddie's not really buying this, and senses something is not quite right. Um, but then leaves. But then, in the foyer of the apartment, has a conversation with the Italian housekeeper landlady, who says, "No, no, uh, Dicky Greenleaf's up there. There's no. I don't know about any Tom Ripley. The only person who's ever here is Dicky, and that makes him extra suspicious. So he comes back in. Tom does some quick calculation of what his options are in this moment, and decides to brain." Freddie Miles with an ashtray. Uh, and then I believe the rest of that chapter is devoted to how he's going to get away with that particular murder. And I think that takes us to the end of our section. Yep. I just realized something that um, there is a there's a little echo back to uh, to Snow Crash towards the moment of Hero mm. cutting off the redneck's head um, with the same, what, what else, else could, could he do? do? <laughs> and that's, that's essentially like... Tom does go through that and realizes that the only option is to kill Freddie Miles with a heavy crystal ashtray. Um, yeah. I gotta say, one of my one of my favorite things about this book is the details of the, the like the prop service and just the loving mm. and very obvious attention to like verisimilitude of um, just equipment, like the trappings of this particular social class that Highsmith just, yeah. I mean, like I didn't live through it, but she's so, she invests such care in the details, um, which is what Tom says you really need to make a story fly. Um, and I yeah. just, I just love all of the stuff. Um, it's funny. I was, as I was, I, I listened to this one. Um, there mm, is a very funny Anthony Lane um, profile of Ian Fleming. Um, the, mm. the author who wrote the James Bond books, um, don't, yeah. don't worry readers, uh, lower middle brow, the Ian Fleming, James Bond novels. Um, I would say, yeah, but Anthony Lane, uh, does a, a sort of, um, in like investigation of one of the first chapters of a Bond novel, which reads almost identically to, to some of the passages where Tom kind of considers what he's going to wear and what he's going to eat that afternoon. And, and in Anthony Lane's uh, description of it, some wonderful end of the paragraph where it's like, one doesn't wonder so much as to what dastardly plot 007 is going to be solving this time, but whether or not 007 is gay. <laughs> which is a question one might wonder about Tom Ripley. Um, the, the, you know, what's interesting is I love the idea of Tom Ripley as the literary James Bond. If you think about it, what one of the, the sort of, we were talking about literary, that category, and generally when people are defining literary, that one of the things they'll talk about is less interest in plot and more interest in character, right? James Bond is a commander and a spy. Yeah, Tom Ripley doesn't have that kind of international machinations motivating him. His own jealousies and ambitions are enough to motivate the same kind of murderous behavior that James Bond engages in. He doesn't need Her Majesty to put him up to it. Um, 
Uh, yeah, he has he has his own majesty to put him up to it. Um, his own yeah, towering exactly. sense of self, which I which I really the reason I say that is I, I really think that's what this book is about. And that's not I mean, that's yeah. an, that's an obvious one. I mean, it's a it's a book about like a like a sociopath. Yeah, I developed a theory just this morning um, that's slightly different. I'm not, and I don't. I think the two theories could be overlaid on one another. I, um, but uh, I'll hope to get to it today. Nice. Um, well, so my first question to you is: Are there any likable characters, say, apart from maybe Cleo, in this entire book so far? Um, uh, Mrs. Greenleaf, mm. poor, well, suffering, yeah. sick, leukemia-ridden. She's pathetic. Yeah. yeah, Mrs. Greenleaf. Um, yeah, yeah. P- pathetic is better um, than likable. There, she certainly has. She certainly has pathos, and she's inoffensive. She does. She she, which is more than I could say for I think just about every other. character. I know. I was just about to say like that is high praise in this book. <laughs> if you are inoffensive, yeah. um, Marge. Marge is. Um, phew, how would we describe mm. Marge? I, like Marge is kind of neutral. Um, she is a little, um, she's a little insufferable. She's writing a book that you kind of get the sense is, um, is not going to be successful. It is a, you know, it is a sort of a memoir of a small sleepy town in Italy where she has done nothing for the past year. Um, yeah, she is also kind of pathetic. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't really care for her, for Patricia Highsmith's treatment of Marge. Um, I think it's right for the book. Um, and when we talk about the or film, it, yeah. I, I think that the, the casting of Gwyneth Paltrow is an understandable choice, but an incorrect one. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's another thing. And maybe we can answer this question in the next episode. Um, I went into this uh, reading of this with the belief that as much as I do think this is a very good book, I think the film is the greater piece of art. And I still feel that way, but it's this second read, the book has actually grown on me quite a bit. Um, And I think part of it, and the reason I asked you about likability is that I've read some of the latter books in the Ripley ad. Um, You know, there were five of them in total. And I believe Tom becomes a much more likable character uh, in the latter books. He's still a murderer, um, but he doesn't really do it to anybody um, unless he really has to, <laughs> uh, um, he doesn't premeditate it in the way that he does with Dickie in this case. And also the Tom in the latter books is a little more self-realized, um, and has less to prove. And so is capable of kindness in a way that this Tom of the Tom of this book, I, he's not very kind. There are, he has moments of kindness and it seems like he has moments where he does become concerned about the feelings of somebody around him. But there is a moment even where, uh, Dickie is scolding him for how he treats Marge. And Dickie says something like, even when you're being kind to her, it's clear that you don't like her. And Tom says something, I'm sorry. And then in the narration is, and he meant it. He was sorry. He, and basically, he was sorry that he didn't do a better job pretending that he didn't like her. <laughs> it, it, it never occurs to Tom that he might actually regard or care about Marge. Maybe it relates to my second question, which I might just skip to, even though sure. I know you have another thought in there too, which is, I I do think 
one of the things that Patricia Highsmith is considered a master at is making readers kind of pull for somebody doing something terrible. And one, I don't know if you feel this way or not. I did not agree with Tom's decision to murder Dickie. But then, you know, and certainly the first time I read this book, I kind of was hoping he would get away with it. Um, That's also, you know, she wrote Strangers on a Train, and that has a sort of similar situation where a character does a bad thing, but you kind of hope they get away with it. Um, And I'm wondering, I don't know, A, Chris, do you feel that way? Are you kind of hoping Tom gets away with it? And B, if the answer is yes, is it because there is something likable about Tom in spite of all of his flaws, or is it just simply that we tend to instinctually uh, identify with the protagonist? I think that's a great uh, a great pair of questions, um, and I think I think you're right that part of this is we do kind of um, identify with the protagonist, and it makes me think that Patricia Highsmith was just like like sitting at her typewriter writing this book two middle fingers like raised aloft to society um being like oh you think you you, you think you're gonna yeah you you're, you're gonna like this narrator i'm going to force you into his shoes uh, because that's what happens even in a limited third person novel um and i am going to play with you as yeah. he continues to do worse and worse things and then I am going to I am going to let him get away with it, and uh, which is which is not a spoiler. There are more Tom Ripley books, none of which yeah. are Tom Ripley in prison. Yeah, and you're gonna like it when he gets away with oh, it. Oh God, I did not. I, I'm glad we disagree on this one. I I mm. hate this character. I don't know if I am layering like some recent experience on top of this or anything like that, um, but. Um, I really, really could have, I, I could have stopped after a few pages after Freddie's murder, um, because mm. really for me at that point, and we'll talk about this more, you know, when we do the second half, um, everything, all of the plot points are done. Um, this is a mystery novel where everything happens in reverse. We are in the character of the villain. We know what happens the whole time. And the um, the unfolding mystery is this kind of like, will he or won't he? And and just after after the second or third time that he kind of puts a plan into motion and sort of skates by on this by the skin of his teeth, um, I begin to suspect that he is, in fact, going to get away with it. And I am actively cheering against him. I, I find I find the Tom of the novel utterly loathsome and a terrifying person. Um, and I can see why in adapting the novel to the movie, they were like, oh, my God, we can't do this. We have to cast Matt Damon, um, who, who yeah. is there's, you know, a few a bunch of people who have played Ripley, all who I think are well suited to it, including John Malkovich, who is also a very mm-hmm. good person yep. to, to to do for this. I just hate Tom Ripley. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason that the movie is the better work of art is that Matt Damon's Tom Ripley. And also, just by the way, this movie has Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, 
and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, all in the very early years of their career. Um, but part of the reason to me that the movie is the greater work of art is that Tom does not plan to kill Dickie. Uh, it's a it's a kind of an accident slash fit of rage moment in which that happens, and Tom is remorseful um, when when he does it, and he over he gets over the remorse, he recovers, and that's when he hatches the plan of you know impersonating him. But there's something about that he a terrible thing happened, and now he's going to make the best of it. To me, feels a lot more sympathetic than. I'm going to kill him and take his identity and planning that a day or two in advance. And and I, I'm going to skip to another point I was going to make, and we'll go back to yours because it, it relates very much to what you just said about not liking Tom. I think this reading, I had not picked up on this before. Certainly, there is a subtext of homosexuality in the book and in the movie. And in the Mingella movie, that's not even subtext. It's pretty clear that Tom has a crush on uh, Dickie, and later Tom has a male lover. Um, and and whereas in the book, it that is a little bit more. It's not ever made clear that Tom has an attraction uh, to Dickie. Um, we know that Tom is jealous of Dickie, and that Tom likes Dickie's attention. We do know that Marge thinks he's quote queer. Um, and apparently when he hears that, Tom is offended by it, but he also isn't surprised because it's something that people in New York have thought about him. And we get the sense that Tom, you know, might set off people's gaydar a little bit um, for whatever reason. I think a lot of the plot points and a lot of the terrible things Tom does make a lot of sense if you see him as a gay or bisexual or sexually fluid man who is also homophobic. Um, yeah, I yeah, same. He he's he's closeted in an angry way. He's closeted in an angry way. He can't really admit his attraction to himself. So that you know when Marge says he's gay. And he denies that. Um, and then Dickie's angry at him. He's embarrassed horribly because on some level he knows that that's true. When Dickie insults the acrobats um, and describes them as being sort of like fairies or something like that, Tom is offended by that. And that is the moment he decides to kill him. And that is a decision of a rejected uh, lover. Um, it, it's the decision of someone who's been romantically rejected, I think, in that moment. And when Freddie suspects that Tom has been living with Dickie after Tom kills Freddie, he thinks to himself, it's his own dirty mind that got him killed. And I didn't quite understand that at first, but I realized what Tom is saying is that he thinks that Freddie thinks that he and Dickie were sleeping together, which wasn't true. And he's like, Freddie, shame on you for thinking such an ugly thing. I would never do that. And it's your dirty mind that got you killed. You know, it's a justification. But still, I think Tom's not admitting that he has an attraction to men. He's homophobic. He's closeted. And that's where all of that anger comes from. And that's why that anger becomes murderous rage. And it's... And I guess this is part of the question maybe that I'm kind of driving at is, is empathy the same thing as sympathy? Because understanding that 
it makes sense and it makes the character more interesting to me and it makes this novel better if you i think if you apply that key to everything that's happening but he's still incredibly unlikable yeah i i can have empathy for not empathy but i can um because i i i don't have these circumstances but you really get the sense that tom was dealt a really bad hand in terms of his younger years and um which is not to say that that is an excuse, but um, but like a pretty a pretty toxic like grouping of uh, of circumstances. Um, his aunt Dottie um, also suspects that he's gay and uh, called and him harps a sissy. On, calls him a sissy um, from the ground up, just like his father. Um, just a a really abusive um, background. And so I can have some sympathy for Tom's um, pain. Yeah. Um, I can have no empathy for what he decides to do with it. Yeah. Um, and I think you're totally right about the movie that the the when he kills Dickie in the movie, it's a crime of passion. Like it's a I don't you know, I don't know what happened when I came to. I was standing there and he was dead. That kind of thing. Um in the book and the the reason and um, yeah i can see why you're sort of going where you're going i i kind of wanted to read the section where where tom decides to kill dickie yeah um, yeah yeah absolutely um, and this is this but, is in the yeah. train coming back from nice right and yes. very shortly after dickie has insulted the uh the acrobats who tom enjoyed yeah they're they're headed back to italy from uh can i believe Sorry, and, not Nice, um, Can. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, they took a day trip to France because Tom was kind of annoyed that he didn't get to go to Paris. So he at least like kind of scolded Dickie into taking him to uh, yeah. Can. There's a great, a great little veiled insult where Tom says, well, "At least that's in France." Yeah. Oh, um, but so um, passive aggressive. Oh. Yeah, like yeah, I they're... would ditch Tom if I were <laughs> Dickie at that point. And I think I don't know. I think the the what you were getting at with um, the way that Tom convinces himself of things. I mean, that's mm. that's one of the the masteries of this book is that we get to see Tom not only lying to the world but lying to himself. Yeah. And some of the great sections of it are are him sort of explaining. Well, he discovered that all one had to do was simply pretend that he was this way, and and he would be this way. Um, it makes me think of the the um, uh, the Richie Ger- Richie Gervais Ricky Ricky Gervais the Ricky Gervais uh, episode with I think Ian McKellen where mm. uh, Gervais is like, how do you do it? You know, tell me about your process. Oh yeah, McKellen McKellen is like, it's very simple. See, um, let's take Gandalf, a wizard. <laughs> yeah, I simply pretend that I'm a wizard. I'm a wizard. <laughs> it's just, it's marvelous. Like it's, it's just, and that's, that's one of, in, in that case, it's a joke. In this case, it is a horrified moment of self, self and world deception. Can I, can I, there, also there's a wonderful, mo- I've seen this in, in this clip. There's a wonderful moment where he reenacts that and he's like, normally I'm, I'm Surian, 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 Surian. Gandalf, you shall not pass. You shall not pass. Surian, 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 Surian. <laughs> It's great. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, that's the light side of what we're talking about. That's the like, that's the oh, yeah. like, oh, let's poke fun. Because because extras in general is the same idea of like, 
we're going to do a show about what people assume about these people. And it's a total put on. Um, but in this book, like it's a horror show because yeah. we are watching, yeah. we are watching like you, you kind of can't, you kind of think it's not going to go as badly as it's going to go because yeah. you're used to these other novels. Like maybe you've read the ambassadors and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, we're going to go off to Europe. We're going to convince this person to come home. There's going to be some stuff, some European stuff. There's going to be some sex. There's going to be some like, you know, plenty of martinis and everything's going to be fine. Um, and then you get uh, you get this uh, you get this paragraph. Dickie said absolutely nothing on the train under a pretense of being sleepy. He folded his arms and closed his eyes. Tom sat opposite him, staring at his bony, arrogant handsome face at his hands with the green ring and the gold signet ring. It crossed Tom's mind to steal the green ring when he left. It would be easy. Dickie took it off when he swam. Sometimes he even took it off when he showered at the house. He would do it the very last day, Tom thought. Tom stared at Dickie's closed eyelids. A crazy emotion of hate, of affection, of impatience and frustration was welling in him, hampering his breathing. He wanted to kill Dickie. It was not the first time he had thought of it. Before, once or twice or three times, it had been an impulse caused by anger or disappointment, an impulse that vanished immediately and left him with a feeling of shame. Now he thought about it for an entire minute, two minutes, because he was leaving Dickie anyway, and what was there to be ashamed of anymore? He had failed with Dickie in every way. He hated Dickie because, however he looked at what had happened, his failing had not been his own fault, not due to anything he had done, but due to Dickie's inhuman stubbornness and his blatant rudeness. He had offered Dickie friendship, companionship and respect, everything he had to offer. And Dickie had replied with ingratitude and now hostility. Dickie was just shoving him out in the cold. If he killed him on this trip, Tom thought, he could simply say that some accident had happened. He could... He had just thought of something brilliant. He could become Dickie Greenleaf himself. How do you feel when after you read that? Uh, hatred for Tom Ripley mm. and an enormous amount of respect for Patricia Highsmith. Mm. What a badass. Like she, I mean, like I, I do have my qualms with the rest of this book that I think it turns into a rather dull procedural. Um, like we know everything that has happened and it's simply, it's sort of like um, we're in different seats, like the second half of Snow Crash and then the second half of this book. I think I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about the second half of this book. I'd be mm. interested to hear what you have to say. But um, the, these, these 40 pages from when he conceives of killing Dickie and then when he kills Freddie Miles. I couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. I, I was like, this this is an amazing book. It deserves more respect. She deserves more respect. Um, it just the, the way that she just walks you down the staircase of Tom's malice and malevolence is, is really masterful. Um, you are right there alongside Tom's thoughts and narration, and the spell creeps over you as you're doing it. You you begin to feel convinced. The trick of this book that I just find remarkable is that Tom is fooling himself, and Tom is fooling the world, 
and Patricia Highsmith is fooling you, the yeah. reader. Yeah. I heard or read recently a description of Patricia Highsmith by one of her biographers that was Tom Ripley without the charm. Which, <laughs> like, take away Tom's charm and what does that leave? Um, you know, I mean, I, I do believe that she was sort of a famous misanthrope, um, but also I think she was charming um, at various times in her life. Um, yeah, no, it, it, I agree. This this Ripley is very unlikable. And in this reading, it's sort of irrelevant because I already know what's going to happen. So I'm just kind of reading for the character. Um, I do find him very unlikable. I think, though, the first time I read this or I watched the movie, I mean, there's a difference here. We've major difference between the film and the movie. The thing that you just read does not exist in Anthony Minghella's 1999 film. And there's a big moral difference there, even though the effect is the same. So somehow for me, watching Tom fool all of these kind of foolish rich people um, and even steal their identity is kind of fun because I think I can relate to Tom's feeling of being every bit as talented and smart as some of the people around me who are maybe wealthier or luckier. Um, especially when I was younger and sort of struggling financially. I, I can relate to that. And so the parts of the book, and these, this is the latter half of the book that we haven't read yet, um, but kind of starting here where he's taking Dickie Greenleaf's personality and he's lying to these rich people and he's stealing their world from them to me doesn't bother me so much because I find it so, I find people like Dickie and Freddie so repugnant in their self-confidence that they deserve this fabulous lifestyle that they have, that they have done absolutely nothing to earn. Um, and so even though Tom is kind of annoying and a hanger on in a mooch, is Dickie any better um, for just being a, you know, trust fun kid with pretensions of painting who shares a little bit of his good luck with Tom until he gets bored of him um, and then casts him off. I mean, Tom shouldn't have murdered him, but if you could somehow have all of Tom Ripley's deceptions and intrigues without the murder, I think I would be perfectly fine with it. And maybe that's part of why my I find my sympathies reluctantly lingering with Tom throughout the book, even though he does not deserve them morally. I acknowledge that. I, I find myself, um, when I think about the characters in this book um, that are not Tom, remembering the, the, the aphorism, like, never ascribe to malevolence what you can ascribe to incompetence. Mm. Hmm. And um, and because because, um, yes, Tom is much more talented than Marge or Freddie or Dickie, whose whose paintings are we, we're pretty sure Dickie is not a good painter. Right. Um, we that, that we're sort of we, we know enough about Tom's sense of taste to, to realize that Dickie is not talented and, and won't ever make it as, a, as and a marge perhaps could be a good writer in 20 years maybe after she has to overcome her grief at losing the love of her life and actually has some you know experience 
to write about. Marge doesn't seem that stupid. She actually seems kind of insightful. She just strikes me as having potentially nothing to say. But I just I can't get past the I can't get past the fact that Tom decides to 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 kill people. Yeah. Um, and I think we we see this in the chapter where um, Tom gets all excited about um, a dope running deal. Oh, yeah. uh, he he speaks to an Italian I crook about that. Yeah, named Carlo. Who the the scheme is hilarious. They're going to smuggle dope, which I'm assuming in this case is is some form of heroin, probably um, in caskets that are coming back from a conflict that is escaping me at the moment. Um, that that two of the caskets won't have bodies in it and they'll be filled with dope. And Tom is really excited about riding in the caskets in the train with the drugs as like drug mules yeah. um, and, and tries to convince. And, and it's the beginning of the end of their friendship yep. um, because yes, Tom might be a hanger on, but if you were hanging out with somebody that you just met a few weeks ago, who suddenly tried to convince you to take part in a drug running escapade and describe it as fun. Yeah. Then yes, your your suspicions would probably be 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 rising. Well, and the thing that Tom is offended by though is the way Dickie is sort of cold and arrogant to the criminal. Um, yeah. which I mean, I this is one of those scenes where I very much feel like they're both in the wrong, you know, that Dickie handles it like the smug, entitled rich kid that he is, and Tom is absurd. It's also one of the things we learn about Tom and and it appears over and over again, which is that, he enjoys danger and he enjoys deception. And it is sort of like if you could give Tom a useful mission, you know, if you could have him, you know, steal a nuclear bomb from some arch villains like James Bond, like a lot of his qualities could be quite useful, but he doesn't really have any motivation to do anything particularly useful with his yeah. talents apart from climb the social ladder that he resents, um, yeah. which is not all that admirable right and it's i i just um you know yeah sure dickie is being a classist prig um but he's also but i think there are different it's a false equivalency to say that they're both they're both doing it for the wrong reasons mm. you know like they're because like dickie is like yeah i would prefer not to involve myself in you know real crime yeah and um and <laughs> And Tom's is, you know, I, I feel like he wants to do that. Tom's an aspiring criminal. I mean, what's his yeah. hobby back in New York? He 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 writes it's a tax letter. fraud. Yeah, although he doesn't he doesn't actually carry out the fraud. He's doing a yeah. sort of like, um, although one senses if he could figure out how to do it, he probably would. But yeah, he seems to be a kind of like aspiring two bit criminal, and it is yeah, it is a weird. It's it, it it's even kind of you mentioned something last week about characters being inconsistent and that his enthusiasm for that smuggling operation did seem a, even a little bit beyond the pale for Tom, I thought, like uh, ill considered judgment. And it's interesting how quickly he gets over it. I, th I think I think there's a good reason why he gets over it. Mm. Um, I think I think it's one of those moments where you are enamored romantically with someone and you lose your shit a little bit 
Yeah. And uh, you're like, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to like we're going to go for like a hike and there's going to be a sunset and we're going to, you know, it's just like and you get so you, you get you completely drink your own Kool-Aid. About and they're like, like, I don't like hiking or, or just like or, you know, they you've gone too far. Yeah. Like and, you know, like, sure, maybe they like hiking, but they're like, well, like, wow, like the banana outfit seems like a bit much. Um, and, you know, or whatever, like completely over the top thing you've layered on top of your your idea for a date. And then later on, I think a normal person and, and actually Tom does, too, like sort of like the ardor fades a little bit and he's still mad at Dickie, but still, like you said, for the wrong reasons. And uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think he's excited about an opportunity to share an experience with someone that he loves. Yeah. And uh, and it just kind of gets away from him a little bit. And then once that cools off a little bit, I, I think it is a consistent aspect of character. But again, like like Highsmith, I think she does an amazing job of making the inconsistencies of her characters consistent. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I adore her now as a character writer and a descriptor. And I think she's I think she actually is not awesome at plot. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think I, I, well, I would agree with that too. And maybe we can talk about this next time because I think that Tom gets away with things a little too easy in terms of plot too. And I think, I think that's part of the problem. You have an observation, you alluded to this earlier, but uh, do you want to go into more detail about Tom in control versus Tom out of control? Yeah. I mean, I think we don't get a lot of moments in the book where Tom is out of control. Um, he, you know, there's the section where he runs home from Marge's and <laughs> throws art supplies out the window and yeah. thinks about doing a handstand, which is sort of the like, the, it's like the prefiguring of of the killing. Yeah. Um, so, listener, Tom has just killed Dickie and thrown his body, uh, has just managed to get his body overboard, um, but he has kind of um, miscalculated as to both the weight of Dickie's body getting it over the gunnel and the weight of the stones that he has attached to Dickie's legs. Um, so Dickie, Dickie does go over the side um, and, and really like, that's it. That's the last time we really get any description of Dickie. It's like Dickie went over and, and that's the last we hear of him. But yep. um, uh, Tom loses his balance and falls against the tiller of the boat. Tom made a lunge for the control lever, but the boat swerved at the same time in a crazy arc. For an instant, he saw water underneath him and his own hand outstretched toward it because he had been trying to grab the gunnel and the gunnel was no longer there. He was in the water. He gasped, contracting his body in an upward leap, grabbing at the boat. He missed. The boat had gone into a spin. Tom leapt again, then sank lower so low the water closed over his head again with a deadly, fatal slowness, yet too fast for him to get a breath, and he inhaled a nose full of water just as his eyes sank below the surface. The boat was farther away. He had seen such spins before. They never stopped until somebody climbed in and stopped the motor, and now in the deadly emptiness of the water he suffered in advance the sensations of dying, sank threshing below the surface again, and the crazy motor faded as the water thugged into his ears, blotting out all sound except the frantic sounds that he made inside himself, breathing, struggling, the desperate pounding of his blood. 
He was up again and fighting automatically towards the boat because it was the only thing that floated, though it was spinning and impossible to touch. And its sharp prow whipped past him twice, three times, four, while he caught one breath of air. Again, what, do you, what, what, are your, what are your reactions to that passage? For anybody who has been in a real moment of extremis, yeah, of like, and you know, and and you and I are both surfers and have spent a fair amount of time um, in a washing machine. In some cases, probably only two or three feet underwater, but but not knowing what direction is up and what's underneath us, and not being able to see anything. Yeah, um, I remember once trying to go swimming uh, off the shore of uh, Cabo San Lucas, and um, the waves there—it's a very steep beach break. And the period um, is short. Yeah. Um, and uh, the um, so the waves are steep. They come quickly and there's a lot of power. And they can uh, sli- if, it, if it's beach break, they can slam you right into the sand, too. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, the period was short enough that I was having trouble coming up between waves because I was kind of duck diving, trying to get in, just mm. sw- trying to swim back into shore. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was only able to get, you know, a part lungful mm. um, before going through the washing machine again and just hoping that I was going to get washed a little closer to the beat. And I remember my my breath getting very ragged. Uh, my heart was pounding pretty hard just because my body was working very hard to keep me uh, to keep me going. Um, and, and I think this this passage is he's such a thinker. And, and even in this passage, as he's losing control, he even thinks about, he has a memory of seeing spins like this before, like his intellect can't turn off. But yeah. it's one of the few times where we actually see him completely losing it um, and being afraid. Um, like the his interactions with the cops, there is a sense of pleasure and daring do for him. Um, that is not present here. He is terrified of the water. Uh, the, that, that, that sentence, he was in the water, gets its own paragraph, uh, which yeah. I think is a, is a really important piece of, uh, of, of words on the page. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, and it's, it, is another, it is another piece of um, just absolutely lyrical brilliance uh, of hers and character insight. It gives me the chills. And I, it's the last real moment that I feel anything for Tom in the book. Interesting. I agree that it's very well written. Although I was also when I, after I read it most recently, I was like, why did we need that? Because the weight of what he's just done morally is so profound. Do we really need this suspenseful action adventure thing to happen? Yes, we do. Why? Because he doesn't feel anything for the horrible moral thing that he's just done, but Mm. he feels something for this. Um, It's the flip-flop of what happens in uh, a T. Caragas and Boyle story, Greasy Lake, um, Mm. where the the character ends up at a party at a lake um, and ends up in the water, in the lake, um, and touches a dead body that is floating in the lake Mm. and, and imagines this dead body's life what it was before and there's a there an actual first moment of human empathy um and this is the reverse motion <laughs> mm. that tom tom's empathy is only for himself um and that's why 
I sort of feel for him in this moment because he is in pain, um, but he gets over it real fast. So I, I think that this is a crucial passage. Well, yeah, I mean, also, so keep in mind, his parents died by drowning in the Boston Harbor. We know that. You mentioned his fear of water earlier. Obviously, this is symbolic moment. It's almost like one of those, like, Joseph Campbell hero journey moments, right? Like the hero has to come through the cave. And it, it is interesting that I think that the spinning boat is an allegory of some kind, right? This is the moment where Tom masters himself. He figures out how to get back on the boat and how to write the course. And I think this is the moment where the course of the rest of Tom's life is take shape. You know, this yeah. is if, if there is any turning point in Tom's life, it's this moment. It, it's also the moment that determines the shape of the rest of his life, which he's going to impersonate Dickie and try to get away with it and try to live this, you know, uh, wealthy lifestyle. And so Tom is resting control of his life. He's, you know, up to this point in his life, he's bobbing in the terrifying water of like the social world. I think that's the allegory that we're getting there. And that in the same way that he masters control of the boat, I don't believe there is a single moment later in the the book, and we'll, we, we should, as we go into the second half, we should look for this. I don't think he ever panics again. Um, you know, he has many encounters as I don't, I vaguely recall, and as you probably know from the movie, you haven't read this book, right? This is your first time reading it. This is my first reading, yeah. Yeah, so you know the basic plot from the movie. I read this 10 years ago. I know the movie. So we know that he's going, there are going to be a number of moments where people almost catch him, and Tom has to keep his cool. And I think this is right. This is the last moment that he panics. So maybe you're right, but it is, it, I do remember being like, wait, like, why are we having this? I, he just killed his somebody, somebody he loves, I think. And we're having this sort of distraction. So I, yeah, I was I was ambivalent about that. But your your explanation is very strong, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I like yours as well. I like that this is a real, that this is an allegorical moment for Tom turning. And I think they can exist together because right. like he is turning towards um, sociopathy. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me of like the scene when Rambo climbs like through the cave to like get out of the prison or something like that. That you know, it, this is why it, we're upper middle brow. These, oh, yeah. are, these are the illusions that make us upper middle brow. Is <laughs> that that moment when Rambo <laughs> climbs through the cave? Accessibility <laughs> plus craft. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Very, very yeah. well crafted. And in all, the only good Rambo movie was the first one. You know. Like, oh yeah. I think yeah. I think they made four. Um, but the first one is a genuinely good movie. I think. All right. Trivia. Um, yeah. Do you want to go first? I, this I've, time? I've, no, because I already gave up my I gave up the goddamn answer to mine in an earlier section of oh, no. chatting. You uh, so you need to ask me one, and I will try to answer it while I come up with a trivia question. You could always just trip me up with a random number from something. <laughs> Uh, I went back and what? looked. It is not 16.42 uh, minutes. It is 15.62 minutes. Oh, interesting. Um, and the description, the 15.63 to 16 minutes, the description there is asswipe, not to be trusted. Yeah. Interesting that the term is asswipe and the entire memo is about asswipes. Uh, I assume that was an intended joke. Also, you know, this probably goes without saying, um, but a point of clarification, listener, you know, my goal 
is not to come up with a question that you could never guess because of course I could do that. You know, I could be like, how right. many words are there on page 176 or something? My goal is to come up with a question that you will really want to get right and not always be able to get right. And you'll have to rack your brain. But um, in this case, uh, um, the question is pretty simple, um, which is how many feature films were made that had theatrical release, so not including like somebody with a video camera who projects it on their their wall, but actual theatrical read. How many feature films were made directly based on this book? Not not Ripley the character in general, but this this book. I am going to go with three. You're correct. It's going to be my wow, my god. I, well, I I got there on I got there on a, a sort of a time like a like yeah. kind of a time like I'm like okay the book the book comes out in 1958 55. I think I think 1958 55. 55 okay so we've got roughly 45 years until the release of which I of talented Mr Ripley the Mandela yep. one which I think came out in 99 yep. um, and so you know it's the I think the book was popular enough to probably occasion a release not long after it was written, um, and then kind of leaving enough time for it to have like another for somebody to take a crack at it in between the two. Movies. Well, that's really good reasoning, but completely wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> I love it, marvelous. That's that's the best kind of trivia um, answer. Correct, but. Incorrect. The first, the first film uh, was a French production um, starring Alain Delon, a great French actor, you know, who's in all those Jean-Pierre Melville sort of French noir films. Very young version of him uh, called Plein Soleil, translated in English as Purple Noon. And I've never seen it, um, but it's supposed to be pretty good. Um, and that was made, yeah, like around 1960 or something like that. There was never an American uh ripley talented mr ripley film like from that era like hitchcock none of them in the hitchcock era hmm. uh so um and anthony Mengele's was an italian and american production so that was probably the first american um production um and then a few years ago there was a tamil language indian production called non uh based on the story although they take quite a few liberties with the story but it was considered based on the talented mr ripley so then the bonus question is how many feature full-length films have been made using the character of Tom Ripley? Mm. Um, I mean, I, I know there's Ripley in Europe, which John Malkovich is in, which I believe you and I watched together. We did. At some point. We did. That was the first. Yeah. That was my first introduction to the character. Actually, I hadn't seen the oh. the Mengele film. What an interesting way in, John Malkovich. Uh, I, my favorite part of that movie is him returning. He's about to leave a compartment and then turns back to his, compa- uh, his companion at the time. Yeah. Takes off his watch and says something like, oh, um, and, 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 and take this watch because if, if I lose it, I'll, I'll kill everyone on the train. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, perfect casting, everybody. Well, and I will argue, and we can maybe talk about this at a latter date, that a, the later Ripley novels, he's a more likable character because he, he is more self-realized. He's actually a kinder person, but he also makes that kind of joke from, from time to time. Like, he kind of laughs at himself. Um, yeah. Nice. In that, uh, in that film, he's, yeah. he's not laughing, for sure. Like, you get the sense that John, that John Malkovich as Tom Ripley would kill everybody on that train 
in that moment. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, he's. You know, I'll kill everyone on the train. Yeah, I think he's. He's. It's dry. He's. He does a lot of dry humor, and he's also the guy he's with is not a natural murderer, and so he kind of enjoys sort of tormenting him with sort of like, yeah, take <laughs> take this garrot. It's not that hard. Just put it around the guy's neck and pull. You know, sort of these like, how boring. Um, but he's a very. He's a very fun Ripley. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to go with 11. Yeah, I wish. Uh, yeah, six is all I could find. Um, and um, one of which I watched recently is quite good, a Wim Wenders film, German production called The American Friend, which is also based on Ripley's Game, which is the name of the one you were alluding to. There's one that I've never seen that looks really interesting starring Barry Pepper, who is one of those actors you see in a lot of movies memorably playing not very important characters. Got it. Uh, and uh, I actually found the DVD and went ahead and ordered that. Um, so oh, cool. six. Uh, as far as I can tell, according to Wikipedia, you know, who knows? There might be others out there, uh, too. All right, I've got uh, I've got one for you. It's it's plot based, um, so you, you might have to rack your brain a little bit. Okay. Um, but um, how does Tom explain when Dickie catches him in Dickie's clothing after Dickie comes back from um, hooking up with Marge? Yeah, I mean the phrase that he uses is, "Oh, I was just amusing myself." Um, but are you looking for more of an explanation than that? No, that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's it. You know, I mean, I think that's such a, um, at that particular moment in the book, I think that's a really telling thing of Tom to say, he, we, we haven't, we haven't gotten to, uh, conceiving yet of like actual crime. Um, and, and everything for Tom is a game. Like that's one of the things that's terrifying about him is he does treat other people and this whole situation that he's in as something that is exciting yeah. for him. Um, and I thought that was another nice line of Highsmith's. Um, she's just, she's really masterful with stuff like that, I felt like. It's a, it's a creepy scene. It's also, it's a very important scene in the Mengele movie too. It's it's well done in that as well. And first of all, it's, you sort of, I mean, obviously it's foreshadowing what's going to happen, which is, He's going to continue to impersonate Dickie with much higher stakes. Um, also, you know, he's embarrassed. And so I think what's interesting about that phrase, oh, I was just amusing myself, is that it is both true, that is what he was doing, but it is also intended to mitigate his embarrassment. And he's saying it as, oh, yeah, whatever. I was just playing around. You know, I was just amusing myself. You know, like, don't worry about it, Dickie. I'm not a creep guy who uh you know is very jealous of you and also obsessed with you and maybe in love with you and also might murder you one day i'm just you know playing around <laughs> nothing to see here <laughs> nothing to worry about so uh, everybody we will be uh discussing the second half of patricia highsmith's novel the talented mr ripley uh chapters 17 through 30 uh through the close of the book uh where we uh we've already given away that tom gets away with it um but we get to see him um contort himself in order to make that happen again and again and again and at what cost to him does he get away with it that's going to be exciting to talk about. I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to chat about that. I'm I'm curious as to what you think those uh, what what he does lose. 
Um, but yeah, do you want to uh, tell our listeners how they can get in contact with us and how they can help us out? And this actually works. I tested it. Uh, B-A-double-G at uppermiddlebrow.com or uh, J-P-D at uppermiddlebrow.com. Also, thank you so much for listening. Last time, Chris Bag, you told people to leave us a five-star review and that if you did, and I think I added the first 10 people or so to do this, we would read the review on the podcast. But I was wondering, is that only for five-star reviews? Yes, only if somebody for five-star reviews. Bad... Well, okay. no, that's not true. Uh, I shouldn't say this. I feel like I'll read any review. If somebody wants to leave us a one-star review, this is a, this, it's a show about criticism, yeah. right? In truth. We'll do, we'll do, poll, we'll do the polls. Uh, leave us a one-star review. Oh, my God. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah, Tell, leave us an honest review. <laughs> this is great. Um, uh, You're getting to watch the two of us, like, like our, our conscience of, like, like, do the right thing. And then, like, also there's, like, an SEO side of us that's like, oh, God, don't give us anything other than a five-star review. Because that's really going to just, like, you know, screw us right in the annals of history. Yes. <laughs> that was a very funny phrase. Um, please leave us a five-star review. Uh, we will read the first ten reviews on air. And if you get um, the word phrase annals of history honest. in there, we certainly will read it. Actually, how about this? If you want to leave us a one-star review, how about not doing that and sending us an email instead and telling us what you think of the show? And maybe we can take your uh, constructive criticism to heart. Um, And we'll read it on the air, first 10. And uh, Chris Bagg, thank you for doing this with me once again. And listeners, thank you so much. JPD, thank you for doing this with me. And uh, I'm so excited to, uh, to see what's next. See you next time. It's Jesse. I'm coming at you from the camper in an undisclosed location because I'm boondocking tonight in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. I have a camping reservation tomorrow and uh, it's just about bedtime. Uh, But I want to let you know that Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Jesse Dukes and Chris Bagg are the hosts, producers, and creators. Thank you to our pilot listeners, including Justin Reich, Catherine Nagasawa, Adam Brock, Robert Lorizel, Jenny Grieve, and Josh Lieberless. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. And uh, here's a little sound from my wood stove, which I just stoked up so you might be able to hear a little something to send you out. You can also hear my inverter in the background. It's a bit loud. I wish it wasn't so loud. Try turning off the inverter for a second. This could be bad though. screen got a little bit scorched there, but uh, I think you hear a little bit of that fire. Inverter back on. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>